This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. Heads up, listeners. This conversation includes discussion of a personal experience of abortion and of suicidal thoughts. If you or someone you know may be considering suicide, I really recommend you call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. That number is 1-800-273-8255. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Anna Sale. 2017 was a big year for writer Erica L. Sanchez. She published two books, a collection of poetry called Lessons on Expulsion, and a young adult novel called I'm Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter, which was a finalist for a National Book Award. I remember the the celebrations of going to different cities and, you know, talking about my book and going to the National book awards and feeling beautiful in my dress and everything felt possible. Everything was just so exciting because I had been waiting for so long for my writing career to to blossom and, and here it was all happening. Yeah, all at once. Yeah, like. it was intense. <laughs> <laughs> After so many years of working crappy day jobs, of writing and rewriting, it seemed like she had finally made it as a writer. I always thought that once everything that I wanted came true, then I would be fine. I would be happy. I would be successful. I would be living the life that I wanted. And, I mean, I was for a a while until a lot of things happened all at once and my mental health really plummeted. Mental health struggles were not new for Erica. It's something she's lived with her entire life. But this was a new combination of things. New demands on Erica's time, added pressure of suddenly being a Mexican-American role model. There was also a change in medication for her depression and a romantic relationship that was going south. It became too much to handle. I knew, you know, that I was struggling in such a deep and profound way that like I, you know, I considered suicide many times. I didn't know what I was going to do, how I was going to get out of it. And so one instance in particular, which I I write about in the book, uh, I go to an event in New York, even though that same morning I decided that I was going to end my life, you know, like I I decided, well, no, I'm just going to go do my job, you know, and so I, I, I hop on a train and I go do it. And then I, I talked to these young women who really looked up to me, you know, and I wondered, like, what would it mean to them if I didn't make it? And in some ways, it was it was good to be accountable, you know, to yeah. I couldn't talk about following your dreams and being a success and taking up space and then and then delete myself from this world. Like it just it. It, it was like this this dissonance that I was struggling with. Things got worse before they got better. But Erica eventually got the help she needed. And that tension between her public success and her private suffering, she writes about it and so much more in her new memoir, Crying in the Bathroom. 
This book, it covers so much ground. She writes about sex and feminism and spirituality, about mental illness and parenthood and art, all with biting humor and wit. I talked to Erica about her decision to share some of her darkest moments with readers, how caring for her mental health has evolved, and what she's learned from her biggest role model in life, Lisa Simpson. Yes, from The Simpsons. But first, I asked her why she decided to write so openly about her suffering. It was important to me to tell the truth because for me, the truth is always what I strive for, right? In poetry and fiction and nonfiction, I, I hope to get to the truth in different forms. And so this was a period of my life that was so formative, monumental, uh, catastrophic, you know, all of these things. I couldn't ignore that. I couldn't pretend like it, it didn't happen when I know that this sort of thing happens to a lot of us. And I I wanted brown women to feel seen by my writing because I know that we suffer from depression in really high numbers. Uh, suicide among Latina teens is, is very high. And so that's the reason that I wrote about it in that way. It's just, it's it's poisonous to keep silent oftentimes and to keep these like really traumatic events just locked up inside of our bodies. I feel like that is not the way that I want to live. And so I, I, I just want to be as honest as possible. Yeah. So much of what you write about is about your big feelings and trying to figure out how to be unapologetic about your big feelings. And this started early for you. You tell a story about your mother noticing a jolt when you were still inside of her, when you were in utero and feeling like you were crying uh, in utero. When you were a small child and hearing this family story about yourself, what did you make of it? I thought it was quite strange. You know, I was like, well, how did you really, did you imagine it? You know, I started to question it, but it made sense because I did have these big feelings. I've always had them. I came out that way. Um, I don't know how to manage them sometimes because they are so over, so overwhelming. And also, my daughter cried in the womb, and so oh, that really? was she did. Yeah, it was really strange. And I huh. was like, no, this can't be. But I I heard her, and so yeah, I knew that that was the beginning of this like sensibility that I have. Ah. And when your family would tell you that story, did you understand it as saying this is how Erica, this is how you are special? No. Or was it No. <laughs> no, no. What was it? What was I mean, the message? This is how you're dramatic? <laughs> yeah, no, I always felt that you know, my my sensitivity was a burden to everybody, mm. including myself. And so when I was a child, I felt embarrassed of, of that and of all of the feelings that I had. I mean, my mom claims that a coworker had said that it, it meant that I was a genius or, or I had a gift or, or something along those lines. And she believes that, she says, because, you know, I've done a lot of things with myself. And so it's it's nice to have that 
um, recognition. But at the same time, when I was growing up, I was seen as a pain in the ass. And so <laughs> it didn't feel too good to be told like, oh, you even started crying in the womb. <laughs> you know, like, um, you, you write about figuring your, out yourself through literature, through stories, through pop culture, including one in particular. You write, people often ask me who my role models were growing up, and the truth is that that designation went solely to Lisa Simpson. <laughs> <laughs> Why Lisa for you? Well, you know, growing up, I didn't have a lot of examples of, you know, being a feminist woman, a feminist girl, uh, being in charge of your own life, speaking your mind. You know, around me, I saw women who were very resilient, but really struggled and suffered in a number of ways. And so I, I did not want that for myself. And so when I watched The Simpsons and I came across Lisa Simpson, she started to introduce me to these concepts that I never even considered, like being independent and and speaking out against injustice and, you know, um, believing that we're equal as women and all of these things that I had never been exposed to. And so all of a sudden something clicked for me. I was like, oh, wait, wait, wait. I can be like that. I could read books. I could know things. I could stand up for myself. And it was really great to to have that, even though she was a cartoon. (laughs) One other thing about Lisa Simpson, you also note um, something sweet about Lisa's relationship with her dad, Homer, and talking about that in therapy one day, how that was meaningful for you. Yeah, it was really unexpected. I didn't expect to be talking about The Simpsons during a therapy <laughs> session, you know. But there I was, and uh, it, it really opened up something for me because I realized that my relationship with my father was very similar to the relationship that Lisa has with her father. Like, he didn't understand her. She would get frustrated with him. Um, and And I felt the same way with my father. Like, we just didn't get each other he's this like taciturn mexican immigrant and i'm this outspoken americanized feminist so it just it caused a lot of friction mm-hmm. i want to ask you about representation and how for you when when your best-selling novel i'm not your perfect mexican daughter came out it spoke re- directly to this narrow range of representation for mexican or latina characters i am not your perfect mexican daughter and since that book came out 5 years ago in 2017 do you think that landscape has shifted broadened at all or do you still find it pretty confining i think it's different now i think um my book, along with many other books, have really opened up different paths for young brown women. Um, I I wanted to, you know, create a story about a girl who was complicated and weird and um, uncomfortable with herself, but also really rebellious. And I think so many people identified with that, and it pleases me so much to hear like what this book means to young girls and and what it's done and, and the audacity it's given them. I, I, I love it. I think it's wonderful. How do you think about mentorship now and your role in mentorship? You, you note like how you desperately craved to see yourself in mm-hmm. literature and you are that for 
many people now. Um, how do you balance showing up for them with the need to take care of yourself, to tend to your privacy, to be honest? Yeah, it's tough sometimes. Um, I try to limit myself uh, on social media, for instance, because I don't have the capacity to to take in all of the commentary and the comments uh, about the book, what it meant to certain people. Like it's emotionally, it's very hard for me to um, to digest it all. I need to preserve myself in order to write because that's my job. I'm a writer. And, um, you know, I'm sometimes very touched by the notes that I get. But at the same time, some notes that I get are, like, really inappropriate. So it's like, mm -hmm. well, what do I do? Um, and also, I'm a professor. And so that's how I mentor for the most part. Like, I hope that I can provide these young women a way to see an alternative path, you know, a, a, a way to be ambitious, a, a way to, you know, pursue their dreams and not be sorry about them. Coming up, when protecting your health during pregnancy also means mental health. And listeners, after the break is the part where we talk about abortion and suicidal thoughts. So if you'd rather not hear it, you can just skip ahead a bit. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Here's a familiar situation. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. A real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Climate change fuels hurricanes. China promises to stop. The big lie persists. Butterflies have hearts. Singers die. Plumbers win. Nurses persevere. Your world speaks. We listen. NPR podcasts. More voices, all ears. Find NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Erica is a new mother. She gave birth to a daughter during the pandemic. But that was not her first pregnancy. You write about having an abortion during a period where you were in deep despair, suicidal. Um, and it made me wonder, when you take in the public conversation about abortion and the public policy debate about how to protect, whether to protect, whether to allow abortion to preserve the life of the mother— um, for you, who was in a real mental health crisis when you were pregnant, when you ultimately sought an abortion, how do you hear that conversation? What do you think about? It's extremely triggering to have to listen to all of these opinions from men, for instance. Um, the fact that so many men are determining what happens to our bodies is very, very upsetting to me. And I am really worried about what's to come and how we're going to support women who need abortions because I feel that abortion is a human right and um, to deny us that is really cruel because, you know, it's not a decision anyone takes lightly. Uh, it's not a, something that anyone wants to do. It's a necessity. And so to make it seem as though there's a choice in the matter is really upsetting. Like, 
what choice did I have in that particular time to to continue my pregnancy and perhaps lose my life to suicide? Like, what was I supposed to do? At the time, did you understand when you were thinking about whether to have an abortion, did you come to think of it in that time as uh, this is a high-risk pregnancy because of the state of my mental health? I am not safe. Yeah, I felt very unsafe. I felt like there was just no way I could, like, continue in this way. And then also sometimes just thinking about having a child with uh, the partner that that we may have, that's a lot, you know, like that's a, a lifelong commitment. And, and to force women to have children with men who they don't feel safe with or men who um, they don't want to be with, I think that's really awful, you know. It's, there's so much involved in, in being a mother that demanding that from people is just, is heinous to me. Mm-hmm. Around this time, you noted earlier, you changed your medication, your your medication that you took um, to take care of your mental health. Um, you were diagnosed as bipolar, um, mm-hmm. which you call the fun kind of depression after years <laughs> of thinking you had just the boring kind of depression, your words. How, how did that diagnosis change the way you understood the narrative of your life? It really made sense. The diagnosis made me aware of the ups and downs that I frequently experienced that I didn't really have a name for. I knew that I was moody, that I had like these severe mood swings, but I didn't realize that my shifts were a a manifestation of bipolar disorder. And also thinking back on all the frenzied states I've been in while I've been, you know, writing or I felt like exuberant or limitless and you know those feelings are really amazing but I think that's part of my illness and I didn't quite get that before. Mm -hmm. After that period of of feeling quite unstable and in despair um, as part of your treatment you tried electroshock therapy and I wonder if you can tell us for you inside your brain what have you noticed about what works differently having had that treatment? What I noticed immediately after the second rounds of, of ECT was that I was able to function in my everyday life. I could experience feelings beyond despair and that I could, you know, eat a meal, a full meal and enjoy it. And I could find joy in talking to friends and family. I, I was able to experience the world again in a way that I thought had been lost. And so I feel that the ECT really just completely changed my life in that it, it gave me uh, an opportunity to to be myself again because when I was depressed, I didn't feel like myself. I felt like... I was hardly 
even existing. I felt like I was barely hanging on. And so at that point, I was so desperate, I would have done anything. And I was just like, sign me up, whatever it is, sign me up. (laughs) Yeah. I'm glad it worked for you. Thank you. The language you use about before that feeling like a wisp of a person, like not coming back into yourself. That's wonderful. As you were finding that treatment, as you were stabilizing, you moved home with Mm -hmm. your parents. What were those two months like returning to living with them and being tended to by them? How did it shift your relationship with your parents? It was unlike anything I had ever experienced because I've always been extremely independent and I've always just wanted to be on my own and figure things out and not ask for help. But this time I had to ask for help. It it was, again, life and death, you know. Um, And so when I moved back for those two months in the summertime, I just felt like myself again, you know, in some ways. And I, I was able to really get a lot of, of, of care and love. And it, it really helped me recover from what I had been going through by myself, essentially, because I, I didn't really share much of what was happening with anybody. And so it, it made us closer, that's for certain. Coming up, what does it mean to trust happiness? NPR brings you the updates you need on the day's biggest headlines. The Senate narrowly passed the debt ceiling bill that will prevent the country from defaulting on its loans. Stories from across the world. Knowing how to forage and to live with the land is integral to Amis culture. And down your block. From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. And you can find all of that and more in your pocket. Download the NPR app today. Near the end of the book, you write, um, I began to notice I couldn't trust happiness a few years ago. And reading that, it made me think about like what it must have felt like to think about where am I ending this book? Um, where does this version of this story end? And was there something scary about trying to tie it up um, neatly at the end? Um, sure. I I think it's quite messy still in, in some ways, um, as much as I am, like, fulfilled and happy in my life, I still have to grapple with my mental illness. It doesn't go away. Um, I'm still brown and female. And so that's really hard in this country. And, you know... There are a lot of worries that hover over me all the time, even though I have what appears to be a perfect life. You know, um, I, I, I'm very happy, yes, but also all of that success and all of the happiness doesn't erase the realities that I have to live through mm-hmm. as a woman of color. And as you prepared to launch this book publicly, into the world and to think about being in front of audiences in an intense way again. Um, Are you doing things differently this time to tend to your mental health than you did in that very busy, very wonderful year of 2017 where a lot was happening professionally? 
but a lot of hard came out of it? Yeah, I am saying no to a lot of things, a lot more than before, and I'm okay with that. It it feels like I'm protecting my time, my energy, my spirit. Um, you know, there's a lot that is required to launch the book and, and all of that, but, you know, there are there have been opportunities that I've turned down because I just, I don't have the capacity, like mentally, emotionally. Also, I have a child. So Mm -hmm. she's really number one here. And I always think about her first. Yeah, I need to do all of these things, but I also need to be her mother. I also want to say one great lesson that I took from your memoir is a lesson from one of your not-so-great exes in your past, um, who's from Portugal. He left you with a great mantra when you asked him why he was with you while he was with another woman. Will you tell us what he said? (laughs) He said, I like to enjoy, which could be the title of the memoir as well, I suppose. Um, (laughs) It's very funny to me. My friends bring it up all the time. I mean, just imagine giving yourself that permission. I like to enjoy. That's why I'm doing this. It must be nice to be a man and to just do whatever you want. Wow. Cool. Well, (laughs) I hope for you a wonderful period of finding so many things that you get to enjoy. Thank you. As this book is coming into the world. I've been enjoying. I have a, a very nice situation, so... I'm good. (laughs) Thanks again to writer Erica L. Sanchez. Her new book is called Crying in the Bathroom, a memoir. It's out now. And listeners, if you or someone you know is having suicidal thoughts, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. That number is 1-800-273-8255. All right, this episode was produced by Andrea Gutierrez, and it was edited by Jessica Mendoza. Engineering support came from Stuart Rushfield. Until Friday, thanks for listening. I'm Anna Sale. Take care. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Tired of not getting a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Get the service you deserve. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. What's happening on NPR podcasts? More neighborhoods and more perspectives. The more of the world that you hear, the more you hear the world as it really is. NPR podcasts. More voices. All ears. Find NPR wherever you get your podcasts.